With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Wrapping up the day's sporting issues deep into the night, this is Extra Time on SENZ. I'm going to call it now. Hey, there we burning in the new hot nights. It's not unusual you want to be loved by anyone. It's not unusual you want to have fun with anyone. But when I see you hanging about with anyone, it's not unusual to see me cry. I wanna die. It's not unusual to go out at any time. Oh, we just love playing that song because um, we had Delilah, didn't we? from Tom Jones and it's been banned at being played at what was Carter Farms Park in Wales because it's got connotations of murder and violence towards women and it probably does but so do a lot of songs that have I guess things that might offend people these days I'm not sure people listen to the lyrics I'm not sure that people uh, listen to that particular song um, to hear all the sinister connotations around. I think they just listen to it because it's a, just a really, really cool song to listen to. So we'll always play Tom Jones. Um, anyway, just thought I'd digress a little bit. A great discussion. Thoroughly enjoyed the last hour or so, talking some Hurricanes rugby and also talking uh, the Blues. We'll open the lines a little bit later on and give you guys a chance to have your say on some of the issues that's come out of that and some of the issues from throughout the day. But we are going to spend a little bit of time this hour talking football. Really excited too because shortly on the program we're going to hear from Richard Williams. Now Richard is a journalist. He's Wrexham's leading journalist. Wrexham. You know Wrexham football? Netflix? The fairy tale story? The Hollywood stars? It's just a great story. It's a wonderful story. And just to remind you, have a wee listen to this. Champions! Wrexham are promoted. They have their storybook ending. You've just seen tens of thousands of dreams come true. Their football league exile is over. Fifteen long years. Times when the club came close to disappearing, kept going by the love of the fans, and then those two have taken it to a completely new level. A sprinkling of Hollywood stardust that has helped make this possible. Wrexham are back where they feel they belong. Yes, indeed. After a 15-year absence, they are back in the Football League. Joining us on the programme from the Wrexham leader, that is a paper over there, their leading journalist, Richard Williams. Richard, welcome. Lovely to have you on the programme um, on behalf Brilliant. of all of New Zealand. Thank you. 
Thank you. I get goosebumps listening to that back every time. <laughs> oh, look, it's a remarkable story. I, I just want to maybe um, just give our listeners, if you could maybe just give us a little bit of a history of Wrexham Football Club, maybe historically, and then say Wrexham, say in the last 15 years prior to the two Hollywood stars coming in and investing and taking ownership. Well, before the, the um, Rob and Ryan have come on board, we've battled um, against extinction a couple of times. We've had unscrupulous owners who have come in in the past and basically tried to make money out of the club. And the club has been so close to going out of business a couple of times. The fans raised over £120,000 one day just to keep the club going and so we could play in the league, uh, in, in the non-league. Um, we've had a couple of relegations and spent the last 15 years battling in the non-league. And Rob and Ryan have come in February 2021, and it's just been a dream ever since. Um, the Wrexham Supporters Trust stabilised the club, in all fairness to them, and we were keeping our heads above water, and we were going okay. Um, but maybe the next, to, to take it to the next step, to get back into the Football League, where we've got such a proud history, we needed a bit more investment. And thankfully, Rob and Ryan saw, were looking for a club to buy in the UK. And I'm very happy to say that they chose little old Wrexham, and they've gone and put us on the map in yep. terms of football in as well as, as in general, I think. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. How did Wrexham get connected with these two Hollywood stars? Why Wrexham? Well, apparently, uh, Rob McElhenney was introduced to football by Humphrey Kerr, who is now the executive director at Wrexham on the, um, I think they work on the set together, the It's Only Sunny in Philadelphia set, um, or one of Rob's productions, and Humphrey's a, a, an actor, comedian anyway, and a, a very big football fan. And Rob, I think on his breaks, he saw Humphrey watching videos of football and he got really interested in football and he decided to buy a football club and, and he got Ryan on board and they were just looking really for a club that I suppose they could, obviously with their connection to being actors, they could start from the bottom at and they could obviously document the rise uh, with their investment. They would make a good, a good, a good story, wouldn't it? And obviously they weren't going to choose someone who was in the second, third, fourth tier. They wanted someone who was out of the football league who... They could start the story off from, and thankfully they looked at Wrexham with like the fan base here within North Wales. Um, we do have the big giant Premier League giants only an hour away: the Man United, Man City, Liverpool, Everton, what what have you. And they just decided on. I think they narrowed it down to five or six clubs, and in the end they went for little old Wrexham. And um, the rest is history, so to speak. They come in and. And they've just turned things around, really. They've brought the feel-good factor back to not just Wrexham, um, the club itself, but the community, all in North Wales. And, I mean, you, it, it's just brilliant. You're getting Americans coming here on holidays, and they're spending a couple of days in Wrexham just visiting um, landmarks that they've seen on the documentary. I mean, they can't even get tickets for games sometimes. But they're just coming to Wrexham just to take in, mm. just to experience it. When news came of um, Robin wanting to buy this football club, was it? Did everybody buy into it? Was it favourable from day one, or was there a little bit of sort of cynicism, perhaps? Well, they, were, they had to have a vote because the club was owned by the Wrexham Supporters Trust, so they had to put, they had to announce who the who the two high profile owners, or high profile uh, people interested in the club were, and when it was emerged, it was Robin Wright. It was like, mm. the neck, you know, are they serious? Anyway, so they put it to the vote, and members of the Supporters Trust agreed to it uh, unanimously as well. It was a high 90s, I think the percentage was, because I just think people re- recognised that the best chance of Wrexham getting out of this division was with the aid of Robin Ryan, and they had their mission statement, who, and they promised to do this and promised to do that. So, yeah, I suppose a lot of people would be cynical because of what has happened in the past where we've had owners who have 
promised this and promised that, and in the end, they end up taking mm. the club for a ride, and, and the club has been close to be going into oblivion. Mm. But they put their faith in Rob and Ryan. I suppose they're going to be in the limelight with their jobs, so really they couldn't really take us for the kind of ride we've been taking for in the past because it, it wouldn't look good on them with their images mm. and their careers in the in the. So yes, there was trepidation. There was, uh, but I think people were thinking, let's give them a go. You know, they, they, they're looking as if they want to do something and. And and I'll I'll be the first one to admit they've put their money where their mouth is and they've talked the talk but they've delivered as well. The race course ground, what is capacity and has every game been a sellout in the last two years? Yeah, well certainly in the last season. Um it was touching sellouts the season before last, the twenty one, twenty two season, which was at Robin Ryan's first full season. We just missed out on the title to Stockport and lost in the playoffs. Uh but for every game in twenty two, twenty three it was a sellout. The capacity is just over ten thousand. Uh, it's a three-sided ground because the cop is dead elected, a famous cop. Uh, uh, but their plans are in motion um, to build a 5,500-seater stand to take us up into 15,000, 16,000. And you'd like to think, of us being back in the Football League, that we'd sell out, continue to sell out because mm-hmm. tickets have been like gold dust for every single game. People have been snapping them up. There's nearly 7,000 season ticket holders straight away. So that, as I, I don't need to tell you, there's not many that left to go on general sale after that. Yeah, I was going to ask you this, and I'm not sure if you know the statistics, but like every football club, there's merchandise that is sold. I'm wanting to sort of know what maybe merchandise figures were, say, three or four years ago, and what merchandise uh, sales have been like in the last sort of uh, 12 months. I, I don't know the exact figures. We have done a story on it, but they've been flying out. The club shop has sold an unbelievable amount of club shirts. They've been sending them off to here, there, and everywhere, and all over the world. Um, obviously, you've got TikTok emblazoned on the front. They've got the Expedia. You know, these big high-profile companies have come in and they've, they've, they want to be part of it. So everything that's been put in the club shop has been snapped up and obviously the tourists are coming here and they want a piece of it as well. It's just, I mean, I've been reporting on 19, Rexman 19 years. I'm privileged to report on my hometown club and I've never thought, I, I have to pinch myself sometimes when I think to myself, is this really happening? I was privileged to interview Robin Ryan when they first came over to the UK in uh, October 21 when um, obviously restrictions were eased because of COVID and I was allowed 15 minutes of them one-on-one and I must admit, even then you're pinching yourself thinking, I'm talking to Ryan Reynolds here. He's the owner of the club that I cover, the club I support and you're thinking, is this really happening? You know, even now there are occasions where you're with Robbers, they come over for the, pre- the parade we had um, to celebrate our promotion uh, last Tuesday. And there's forty thousand people lined the streets of Wrexham. It's just it's just been a fairy tale. It really has. Have you had to remind Ryan Reynolds that it's football, not soccer? <laughs> I, I tell you what, he's he's gone on record and said it himself. But he's he, I don't think he believed he would get as hooked as he has and, and taking it in. I mean, you know, they do leave, live and breathe it when they're here. You, you know. Yes, he's new to the game, but I think it's you know, and he'll be the first one to profess that they don't know. You know, running a club, and they've got obviously advisors in this country who are, who are, who are do, running the running the show for them. But yeah, I mean, he's obviously brushed up on his knowledge, and he's very good when it comes to things. He knows his people of Wrexham, you know, as in you know former players, and he knows this and he knows that. So yeah, he's he's uh, he's, he's brushed up on everything, and uh, and and he's taken us, he's taken little Wrexham to his heart. He has. I see that the EFL have just signed a big television deal, I think, with Sky around the billion dollars, yes. which you know the clubs do get a slice of. You then take in the merchandise sales, the fact that they are they are a global trend at the moment. 
So what does that now mean in terms of the quality of player you can now buy and what are, what ultimately is the goal for Wrexham? And is it all coming well, a little bit too quickly and how do you manage that expectation? I suppose the expectations have always been high at Wrexham because we've had, um, we, I don't know if people know, but because being a Welsh club, we've allowed in the Welsh Cup competition and we've actually qualified to the European competitions over the years. And we have a proud history. We've got to the quarterfinals of the Cup Winners' Cup, losing to the Belgium and, and, and elect the Belgian Giants. And we've done well in the FA Cup over the years, got as far as the second tier in the late 70s. So Wrexham have got a proud history in the Football League. They are well, a well-known club. Um, in terms of the better players, well, we do actually, I'm not afraid to say this, but we did have a very, very good squad this year, which has got us promotion because the investment has meant we were able to attract better players for this division. Um, and, you know, some clubs maybe didn't like it, but we're not the first club in this division who have gone and bought their way, bought their way to success because other clubs have been in the same boat well, where they've had uh, wealthy, wealthy owners. Mm-hmm. So, and Salford being one where they all, they got the Man United former players. Um, so, Wrexham, no doubt, will be able to go out with all this money that's come in, and they will be able to attract even better players. It do, the squad doesn't need a lot doing to it because obviously they've done so well. It's been a record-breaking season for us. We've had 111 points, which is the best ever in any of the top five divisions. So, really, money shouldn't be an object going out to strengthen the squad further. And as Stockport are now fourth in League Two in the playoffs. It, honestly, Rex were one of the favourites for promotion again next season already, and that's without them even signing a player. So you'd be very disappointed if Wrexham didn't get into the playoffs at least, and certainly targeting a automatic promotion place because there's three teams go up automatically in League Two compared to just the one in the division Wrexham just got out of. So, you know, I mean, a couple more promotions as we're going now wouldn't be out of the question, but obviously as you get closer to the Premier League, which would be the big, big, big dream, which Rex have never, ever been to, I suppose you would need a lot more investments because the, the, the money that teams in the championship are spending to try and get into the Premier League is frightening. But yeah, I think just going back to what you just said then, you've got to manage expectations. We've, we're going to enjoy this promotion, tackle League Two, which will hopefully lead to another promotion. But as the further you go along the road, obviously it'll get tougher and tougher. Mm. But I think I honestly do think the toughest division to get out of has certainly been the National League because mm. when only one team can go up automatically and we've been trying it for 15 years, it feels like a, a, a big job has been done there. But obviously it's, the journey is only starting, So as we, as we all like to say here. Mm. You're listening to SENZ. We are talking about Wrexham Football Club, The Rise, one of the great Hollywood stories. Richard Williams from the Wrexham Leader, one of their leading journalists, is my guest on the programme. Um, uh, all said and done, you haven't been able to get Gareth Bale across the line. <laughs> well, Rob's wanted a game of golf where he said he was going to try and entice him to come out of retirement and play. I mean, that would be a, a, a great a great addition. I know Gareth hasn't played a lot of football the last couple of years, but he's a Welsh giant. He's a Welsh legend, isn't he? One of the best players, if not the best player, along with the great John Charles, to have put on a Welsh shirt. So, I mean, that would be another masterstroke, wouldn't it? In terms of the, the uh, you know, bringing in a player of that calibre. I mean, even even if he not the player he was, he'd certainly have mm. something, especially playing in League Two. I mean, he but he got Phil Parkinson, our manager, managed to entice Ben Foster out of mm. retirement. I'm sure everyone knows that the former England international mm. goalkeeper when our goalkeeper, Rob Lainton, was ruled out for the season with eight, nine, ten games to go. And he played a, a key part in just getting us over the line. So I think a lot of these players, 
would enjoy the fact to come on board for the for the ride with the with Hollywood owners, but I don't think Gareth Bale needs the money to it that way. Uh, no, <laughs> I, I want to talk about your manager, Phil Parkinson. How much credit needs to go with him? I mean, we see it. There's only two types of managers in English football, those that have been sacked and those that are about to be sacked. I mean, it's hard. I mean, you've got to bring a group of guys together. You've got to get them. There's been a lot of hype around this. There's been that sort of, start, you know, Hollywood stardust sprinkled over this team. Um, but you've still got to have a good manager. Yes, he's um, he, he's certainly been um, a manager who's had success before. He came to Wrexham, he had three promotions. He's managed for over 20 years. Um, people can say, well, he's brought these big name signings in. He spent a lot of money. He should be enjoying the success he's had with Wrexham. But you've still got to put them into a team, as you just said, then. You've still got to gel them. You've still got to make... It's a team game, isn't it? You might have the individuals, like Paul Mullins scored 47 goals this season. But you've still got to gel them into a team and you've still got to keep up the goals at the other end. So Phil deserves a lot of credit, really, because, yes, he's had money to spend. Yes, he has been able to bring the better kind of player in that maybe previous managers at Wrexham haven't been able to. Um, but he forged them into a team last year. We finished runners-up just behind Stockport. Went again, just tweaked the squad last summer. And uh, hey, presto, he got the got the team over the line again this season. So we've been up there since day one in the season, uh, battling out with Notts County. End of the season, we'd have had the title wrapped up in March, but um, Notts County pushed us all the way. And still deserves a lot of credit. And he'll go down in history as being the manager who um, who who, um, who got us over the line, got us finally back into the football league, where hopefully we'll stay and just keep mm, on rising. Well, you've only got to look at what Eddie Howe did with Bournemouth and where Eddie Howe is now. And um, you know, while you'd love to hang on to him. Uh, equally too, you know, it's a great stepping stone, isn't it? And it's just part of this wonderful story. Uh, look, historically, who's your greatest rival? I mean, Manchester United, Liverpool, you've got, you know, Spurs versus Arsenal. Who is historically your greatest rival? And in League Two, who's the club that you probably, you're going to encounter next season that probably historically you sort of want to beat? Um, well, Chester are our biggest rivals, um, purely because we're separated by the border. There's 10 miles in between Wrexham and Chester, and uh, we've got the English-Wales border there, so it's not just England against Wales, it's Wrexham against Chester when we play them. We've not played them for a good few years because oh. they've been lower than us, and they're going to be even lower than us because they failed in their bid to get promotion, and we've got upper division. So we shouldn't be seeing Chester for a good couple oh, of years. Oh, no, I understand, uh, I, 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 under- I understand, though, that Sylvester Stallone and all these Hollywood stars are now looking at Chester. <laughs> That's the next one to go. <laughs> but... Uh, I mean, obviously, I, I, I dread to think what they're thinking about what's happening at Wrexham. But on the other score, in this division going up, we're, we're into Tramere's a little bit further afield. Yep. But people, just to let them know, Tramere is not far from Liverpool and Everton. So it's it's, it's as close to a local barbie as you're going to get in that division. We've got Newport, who was in South Wales. Not a massive rivalry with them, but obviously it's north against south. So And Stockport, who beat us to promotion uh, the first year, first full year, Robin Ryan mm. were, were at the helm. Mm. They're obviously in the League Two. They could be in League One if they mm. get promotions via the playoffs. So they're our biggest rivals. But we've never really had the rivalry with the likes of Manchester United, Man City, because we've not played with them. They've not been in our division. We've had the odd occasions where we, where we've played against them, like Manchester City had a fall from grace before their millionaire or billionaire owner come in, um, and we played them in the third tier. But that was a good few years when Wrexham were in the football league. So there's no rivalry as such with these Premier League clubs. Uh, our rivalries against teams from the lower reaches, but um, I'm sure that we'll, uh, we'd will we love to be up there and, and call Man United, which is only a 45-minute drive away. Um, like, like to form some rivalry with them in the future. Hey, just my final question then. Your squad, 
um, by the time the season kicks off, well, they would have got over their hangovers from this trip to Las Vegas. That's the big question. Everyone wants to know because these boys are going hard and thoroughly deserved. It's been an all-expenses-paid trip, which Rob and Ryan have uh, gone put on for the boys. Uh, I think Rob's attended with his wife. Um, I think she's been keeping them in check. I've seen a couple of videos, a couple of posts of putting some cream on some of the boys' back, you know, a couple of younger members of the squad. So I think the good thing from our point of view, the party was straight after the season finished. Yeah, let them enjoy the celebrations. Let them enjoy some time off now with their families and come back ready to go again in what will probably be end of June, beginning of July, ready for the season to start in August. So, yeah, they've got plenty of time to to reflect on everything as well, because they deserve this as well. They, they'll be called down as legends like like Phil for, for delivering the promotion that we've all craved. And, um, yeah, so I've seen the, the, the videos and the pictures. They have hit it hard in Vegas, and but well-deserved. <laughs> well, Richard, I love the passion. I can hear the excitement in your voice, and thank you for taking uh, time early in the morning and joining us here no in problem. New Zealand. Greatly appreciate it. It's a big story here, I'd imagine. You know, I've seen people walking around in Wrexham shirts as well, so they're certainly sending them to this part of the world. Uh, and look, all the very best, and let's hope that you can move from League 2 okay. back into League 1, and then you can end up playing my mob Liverpool at some point. Brilliant. Thanks for having me on. Brilliant. Thank you. It is 20 minutes after Thanks. 8. You are listening to SENZ. We'll take a break. We'll come back with more. I'm going to catch up with Matt Brown, um, who I used to work with, sports journalist. He's now working for Oceana uh, Football Confederation. And I just want to find out a little bit about Oceania Football, um, what their purpose is and some of the tournaments that are coming up. But I might have enough time just to sneak in a quick talkback call if someone does want to phone through. I know Graham's probably up there in Radio Land wanting listening, probably listen to the comments there of Steve Devine. 0800 150 is the number. Head of Media and Communications for the Oceania Football will join us on the programme in around about five, six minutes from now because the OFC Champions League kicks off this week starting in Vanuatu. But let's go to the phones and we welcome Ben. Hi, Ben. Good, Mark. How are you going? Good, thank you. Yeah, I'm just ringing up to have a bit of a chat about competition in international rugby and um, with the announcement of the MOU today with Japan. Is is this the direction the All Blacks want to be heading in, in your opinion? Um, I lived over in Europe for the last kind of six years and got really obsessed with the Six Nations, to be honest. Um, just the, the week-in, week-out level of competition and how, much, how badly those teams want to win that was just something that... I really hadn't really appreciated while living in New Zealand. And now I think about South Africa dropping out of Super Rugby um, and where's the competition for our teams going forward that's really going to mean that we're going to be no- remain number one in the world. Yeah, look, this is a cash grab, um, and I don't think they've got too much choice here. They've got to look for revenue sources because we, you know, we're dealing with the Kiwi peso rather than the euro or the pound. Um, I'm with you. I mean, yeah. it starts to look a little bit like exhibition football, doesn't it? What does it all mean? Um, how much weight is put on this? What also has annoyed me when we have played Japan in the past, we've often put out second string All Black sides, and um, you know, then do we start? Are we starting to franchise the All Black brand a little bit? And people might laugh at that. Oh, look, you know, it, there's too much emphasis here on the Rugby World Cup, and we've just got to win every game, and we've got to make rugby exciting. I, I've said this, Ben, but you look at club rugby, you've seen clubs amalgamate. The interest in MPC, I mean, it's just not there now. And then you see Super Rugby, week in, week out, rest and rotation, 4,000 or 8,000 people tuning up at Eden Park to watch the Blues take Moana Pacifica, and you go, well, OK, they clearly only care about the All Blacks. And then what are they doing? 
they're almost starting to cheapen that now. What I just want to see back here, Ben, is if we're not going to, if we, I, I want to see the Northern Hemispheres tour here, play three tests, play the midweek games, have the dirt trackers, and start getting back to um, the good old days. Let's get rid of, let's get rid of, uh, you know, the the rugby championship or whatever we damn will call it. I'd rather play South Africa less, but we travel over there once every four years and play them in three tests and. You know, go and play in places like Greekland West, and then every other, you know, every alternate years they come here and have a three-test tour. But yeah, it's just a cash grab, and unfortunately, I want quality, not quantity. Yeah, I completely agree. Then on top of that, we've been resting our All Blacks. Yet one of our build-up games to the Rugby World Cup is a Japan game. It seems crazy. You think we'd want the most difficult competition we could get, getting out the best team every week. Um, no, so I completely agree with you, Mark. It's really, really but, but see, the problem is, Ben, they're telling us there's too much rugby. And so what, what's being compromised? It's the domestic competition. It's super rugby. And we've already, as I said, we've already, we've already compromised those other layers below. So, you know, it's like, well, so what is it? Is it too much or is it only too much? There's never too much when money's involved. No, I completely agree, mate. The, the three-game series when the Northern Hemisphere teams come down here at the end of their season, I always really enjoy that. One thing I love about American sport is the kind of seven-game finals series. It creates these really exciting um, games, and it doesn't matter how you perform one week, you can kind of turn it around. How come we don't do that in the Northern Hemisphere? How come we don't get over and play France back-to-back three times and, and really come, the, go to the best teams rather than having these kind of sell-out games against a poor understrength Wales or a game against Italy. They've got to England and play them three times a row at Twickenham and see how we go. Yeah, look, I completely agree, and I think that's the way going forward, Ben, and take the dirt trackers and take that wider squad and have guys playing midweek games against some of these top English club sides and, you know, and then some of the players have to back it up three or four days later. Let's get back to the good old route. They're not interested in us, though, Ben. They don't care about the fan. They know everything. Yeah, yeah, but then think also how easier that would be on the travel for all of the players. You, you park up in England, like you said, you do a midweek game. You just have to hop in a bus and pop down the road and then pop back. Um, you're not flying from Italy to France to Scotland all over the show every weekend. At the end of what's already been a pretty tough season. It does bring around the um, the question of whether the, uh, the the international season window where everyone plays at the same time is, is really the way forwards and whether that'll actually become a reality or it's still just a dream that's oh, look, I don't papers. Look, I just don't think that either... You know, there's too many professional clubs and organisations to get a heads of agreement on it. It's seasonal based, isn't it? It's a winter code, and I just can't see it happening. Um, but yeah, hey, look, Ben, great to have you on the program, mate. Loved it. Brilliant. Thank you. Awesome. Cheers, Mark. Really enjoy your content as well, mate. Keep it up. Thanks no, a lot. Cheers. Thank you. It is 8.30. You're listening to SENZ. We'll take a break. Matt Brown next. We'll continue talking a little bit of football, something slightly different. I want to find out a little bit more about sort of Oceania football, what their role is in the Oceania region, because there's like a Champions League starting this weekend in Vanuatu. Matt Brown on the programme next. Yes, indeed, you are listening to SCNZ. We'll open the lines a little bit later on 0800 150 You can text us here on 8833. Now, the OFC Champions League for 2023 kicks off this weekend in Vanuatu. To talk a bit about this and to talk about Oceania football is the media and communications manager, Matt Brown. Evening to you, Matt. Welcome. G'day, Watto. It's been, a, it's been a while. Nice to talk to you again. Yeah, no, lovely. Uh, again, one of the finest broadcasters I've worked with, genuinely. Uh, Matt, what is the role of Oceania football? 
Well, um, it's a very, um, it's a huge role, really. It's to uh, ultimately grow football in the Pacific region. Um, New Zealand, of course, is the biggest member nation of OFC. Uh, we have 11 uh, member nations um, as far afield as Tahi, plus two associate members, uh, Tuvalu and uh, Kiribati. But um, as far from um, you know, Tahiti, out, of course, east, and then uh, Papua New Guinea, um, out west are uh, the Melanesian countries, Vanuatu, where I'm heading to tomorrow for the Champions League, uh, the Solomon Islands as well, um, and of course um, Fiji, Tonga, Samoa. Um, I know I'm going to miss one, uh, the Cook Islands. Um, yeah, anyway, there are 11. I may have missed one there, but uh, but yeah. And the role is um, you know, to grow and develop football in the region, uh, both um, in terms of participation and high performance, um, and ultimately um, Oceania's goal uh, from 2023 to 26. it's a, it's a a pretty lofty one too is to qualify two teams uh, from the region for the both the 2026 Men's World Cup, 2027 Women's World Cup, uh, and of course now OFC has two, uh, sorry, one and a half direct spots. Always used to be a half spot, but with the uh, expanded uh, tournament at World Cups now, I think 48 teams at the next one. Uh, one team, uh, yeah, and let's say probably New Zealand, although we did see in the Olympics 2016 Fiji upset. Um, the young all-whites, and, and went to Rio. Um, and, of course, a half spot for another team. So that's, of course, my big, huge motivation for a Pacific side. You know, who knows? I mean, wouldn't, I mean, I just think um, one of the inspiring things would be a, t- a country like Vanuatu maybe drawing Chile mm. in an, onto intercontinental playoff. Yeah, Matt, what has been the biggest barrier for the smaller Pacific Island Oceania nations in terms of their progression and their development historically? Oh, resources have been massive. I mean, OFC, um, being the smallest of the FIFA confederations, um, receives um, a good level of funding from FIFA. But, you know, it's always, whenever you're an NGO, it's never quite enough to do what you want to do in terms of development, um, development and plans, etc. And so um, funding is, is a big thing. The money that just perhaps isn't there and in the past, you know, may have gone in, in, in wrong areas. Um, I look at facilities. Um, I was fortunate enough, I've only been in this role for, for three months, I was fortunate enough to go to Samoa uh, for the uh, qualifying tournament for this um, in Apia, and um, and it was really you know quite um, fascinating to see um, you know the resources that were put in there for the Pacific Games. But you know to be fair, the the football fields itself, um, you know the quality of the pictures are not probably up to where you know we would like to see them get to um, down the track. So, um, I think, um, you know, to, and the other thing that goes with that is, is coaching, technical expertise, etc. you know, is there that intellectual property within the Pacific region? Um, there's a lot of work going in, in, uh, in football, the, the football division, you know, to, to develop coaches, to develop referees, to develop everyone involved in the game. So, um, yeah, but huge challenges, of course, um, but, you know, um, right through the region. Yeah, and I'd imagine too, though, Matt, historically, football has always been about the men's game. Now, there is a real shift and it's about getting more and more girls and more and more women playing. Is there the resource to be able to develop two at the same level? Yes, there is. It will take time. I mean, OFC have two, you know, through their sort of social responsibility um, division, have two campaigns. I mean, Just Play's been around for more than a decade. That's targeted at six to 12-year-olds, both boys and girls, um, to get them involved to playing. And then the This Is How We Football, um, through the Gender Equality Playbook, which was developed last year, um, the This Is How We Football campaign, which was launched very recently, it's going to be rolled out this year, is really targeting sort of 13 to 24, around about that, year old girls and women to play in the game. I mean, there's been a lot of barriers to to girls and women. To, and women. Um, I mean, obviously, violence, um, 
um, uh, just general, general gender equality. I mean, everything's gone into the mm. men's game. Um, you know, domestic violence and the lack of access to sanitary products, for example, um, yep. throughout the Pacific. Um, so there's a lot, there's a big focus. And of course, the Women's World Cup and OFC will be looking to, you know, clearly leverage on that being staged down in Australia and New Zealand um, in July, August. Um, and there's a lot of excitement around that, I think, in the region. Um, but yeah, there's certainly, what might, from what I've seen, there's certainly um, a real desire um, and a lot of kids loving the game. Um, one of the other goals I should mention, actually, is to displace rugby um, in countries like Fiji and, and Samoa and Tonga. I mean, it's a huge goal, and, and we're nowhere near, football's nowhere near to, um, you know, to, to achieving that at this stage. But there's certainly, you know, some, some good programs and, and starts, and, and a lot of kids, um, you know, want to kick a ball around. Uh, Matt, you talked about the FIFA Women's Football World Cup about to be played here in July in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, what I'm just trying to get some sort of idea of hierarchy here. So you've got New Zealand, uh, you've got New Zealand football, you've got Australia, you've got Dave Beach overlooking the actual mm-hmm. organising and running of the tournament. So where does OFC fit into it and where does New Zealand football fit? Yes, OFC are very much, uh, um, dare I say, spectators, I suppose. I mean, if you look at FIFA, and this happens for all FIFA tournaments, wherever it's staged anywhere in the world, in any confederation, they pretty much come in and take over and run it um, along FIFA guidelines. And so they appointed, I think it would be, what, probably two years ago now, a local kind of organising committee um, overseen by, you know, by FIFA. Um, I think of the media people there, people like Kim Taylor, um, Jackie Van Tran, who are, who are there, who have been in place now. Um, and uh, <laughs> I'm just trying to think, uh, the lady that you uh, dealt with too, um, back in the day uh, running cricket and sports like hockey and, yep. and media. But, you know, there are a number um, who have been appointed. And so FIFA pretty much come in and run the tournament. OFC, from our perspective, we, we will run some activities alongside it, but we're very much not part of the organisation, so to speak. Sure, there are VIPs, there's general secretaries and presidents, and, and OFC, what we will be doing, we'll, OFC holds an annual congress, which will be held the day before the opening ceremony of the, of the, World, of the World Cup. And, of course, this is a, a massive opportunity for, for OFC, given that all the big weeks from FIFA, Gianni Infantino and co. Sarai Behrman, of course, who hails from Samoa, um, the head of women's football. Um, she is um, going to be present and all. And so that is what OFC will be doing. But in terms of actually running the tournament, it's very much FIFA-centric, run by FIFA. And to be honest, mate, my understanding is there's a cast, you know, there'll be a cast of hundreds. Some of them, you know, the old, the old saying, um, you know, there'll be some here for a great time, right? Yeah. yeah, no, look, Matt, I've been to Olympic Games. I'm very aware of how the model does work, and I'm not sure that's dissimilar it's similar versus the IOC. Uh, Matt, so this weekend, and I know you're heading off tomorrow to Vanuatu, we've got mm. the OFC Champions League. Uh, what is this tournament? How is it played? How is it structured? Does it involve clubs or does it involve countries? Yeah, so this is the club tournament. It's kind of a premier club tournament in the region. So you think of every region they have them. I mean, the highest profile one is obviously Europe, the Champions League. And, and this is between champion clubs. And what's happened, though, um, is that there was a national playoffs back in February, March. So Auckland to, to, to determine the team that would represent each country. Um, and so from and if we look at New Zealand, Auckland City, of course, 10 times champions per perennial. They dominate this competition. Um, they played Wellington uh, team, uh, Wellington Olympic, who, who qualified um, who were the runners-up and were very close with Auckland City last year. So they played over two legs, and it was it was just fascinating. I mean, I think the first leg was one all in Wellington. The second leg, Wellington Olympic led 3-1 
at Kiwitea Street, I think midway through the second half, and Emiliano Tade, the sort of veteran um, star for, for Auckland City, I think he scored a hat trick, and they won five three and, and progressed, um, you know, sort of six four on aggregate. Um, and um, you know, the neutrals, I think, probably wanted <laughs> Auckland City won't like me for this if they're listening because they're on the same flight as me tomorrow. Um, but I think the neutrals were quite keen to see another New Zealand team um, in there. But uh, but Auckland City, and they were going as favourites, so they play. Uh, you know, there are two pools of four, uh, two from each pool qualify for the semi-finals. You know, one from and, and the two cities, Luganville and Port Villa, are hosting this tournament. Um, and Auckland City will be based up in, in Luganville. They play a team from the Solomon Islands, Solomon Warriors, Suva FC representing uh, Fiji, and also Lupe Olasoanga of Samoa, who won the, the qualifying tournament um, featuring teams from Tonga, Americans, American Samoa. There you go, I missed out them earlier on, uh, and the Cook Islands. Um, and then the hosts, um, you know, Efira Blackbird from, from Vanuatu. And boy, just to give you a bit of context, football in Mel- Melanesia in particular, do you think of you know, Solomon Islands? Vanuatu um, and to an extent Papua New Guinea. Uh, of course, they, rugby, they compete a lot with rugby league over there for, for, for numbers too. But they are, they are ferocious fans. They are like your European fans. So I'm told that there will be seven or eight thousand packing these sti- tiny stadiums, and the atmosphere will be raucous. They'll be singing, you know, dancing right through the game. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, having been to you know the qualifying tournament in, in Samoa, where there were probably four or five hundred people, and it was very much you know, what are we kind of watching here the first time they'd staged the tournament? So um, that's a good thing about Melanesia and those those countries, they just live and breathe football. And how long does the tournament run for? It's two weeks, so um, three group stage matches. So the first matches are on uh, Sunday in perfect times too, live streamed um, here in New Zealand on IFC's platforms on the IFC website so you can... You know, you can see the matches. In fact, um, I'm sure you you will know um, the names of some of the commentators, but one of them um, in particular, Seamus Martin. Um, you know, if I give a plug out to Seamus, he's been around a long time. He's worked at IFC. Um, and, of course, he's part of that 22 Bears podcast um, with Steve Holloway, which is which is very successful. Seamus um, is one of the commentators coming from, from here. Uh, and it's, uh, yeah, three, group, three match days and semifinals, I think, on the 24th, Wednesday the 24th, and the finals on the 27th. Uh, of May, so um, you know a lot to look forward to over over the next couple of weeks. The winner goes to the Club World Cup. I might add that too, uh, which of course Auckland City's been going to over the years. It's the last of the annual Club World Cups, um, and it's being held in a country which we probably don't want to talk too much about. I'm in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, in December, um, but. Um, that's where the winner will go um, in December oh. for the last of the kind of annual Club World Cups, Mark. It's interesting. Lydia Coe wins a golf tournament in Saudi Arabia, but no yeah. one says no one says anything about it. Uh, Matt, so everything's based at what the Arca Palago Stadium in Vanuatu? No, it's uh, so. So there's a, there's a couple of there's a few stadiums here um, in Luganville. It's called Soccer City Stadium. Now, yeah. to put a bit of context, I mean, and you know, I haven't been there. I'm going for the first time. Luganville is on the island of Santo, up in the north. And it is, um, you know, the population of the town is like 18,000. Um, there's a main street and, um, and it's famous for its tourism. It's diving, um, these deep water blue holes, it's beaches. So, I mean, maybe I'll get a, a wee moment um, to, to go and experience that. But, yeah, that's Luganville where the where Group A has been based. Uh, and then Group B and the semi-finals and finals are in the capital, Port Villa, um, which is the major stop on, you know, on the sort of a cruise boat um, network's beautiful um, sort of port city um, with, with islands in, in the harbour. I have, um, I, I have been, I have been, stadium. yeah, I have been, Matt. I've been to the little blue hole you talk oh, about wow. too. Thoroughly recommend it. Did the cruise, and so I do <laughs> recommend it. Do the big swing off Thank the big you, Matt. tree, Matt. 
I'll definitely, I'll definitely do that, mate. Try and get photos and send Hey, you hey, so, so just Matt, just one more time. Those people that might want to watch the live stream or find out a little bit more information, what's the best way of doing that? Hey, go to the OceaniaFootball.com website, um, and you can look at um, the tournament there. That are links there to the live stream. Every match is uh, is linked uh, on the news section. You can click on that on the TV section. There's a there's a links to match to all the matches. You can watch. And the great thing about the kickoff times, uh, daytime tournaments. So midday, which is 1 p.m. in New Zealand, and 4 p.m. So all the matches are 1 p.m. and 4 p.m. So if you are, have got time in the afternoons, the final, I believe, is on the 27th at 3 p.m. New Zealand time, so on a Saturday afternoon. So, yeah, let's hope uh, we'll see some good um, football um, by the young, the young men and uh, throughout our region. Well, Matt, hopefully you've got your mobile on. Maybe we can get some updates over the next couple of weeks. But, look, lovely to have you on the programme, providing some um, context here and maybe just upskilling a few people, including myself, in terms of what Oceania football do in this particular tournament. Travel safely. It's been a privilege and a pleasure, my good man. Cheers, Wado. Thanks, mate. Matt Brown there. Uh, OFC Champions League kicking off this weekend in Vanuatu. It is 11 and a half minutes away from nine. You're listening to SENZ. If you do want to phone the programme, telephone number is 0800 150 We do have enough time. We're going to have a reasonably busy uh, second hour. We've got an interview that Ben's actually done, which we'll explain to you about a young man who's playing professional rugby in Scotland and took an unusual pathway to picking up a contract over there. So we're going to do that after nine. But if you do want to have your say, uh, 0800 is the number. Okay, it is seven minutes away from nine o'clock. Coming up after nine o'clock, we are going to have an interview with Tom Jordan. Uh, ben, I'll get you talk us just a uh, Tom Jordan, is it? My apologies, um, Tom Jordan. Uh, just give us a little bit of a background on Tom Jordan and what made you curious about trying to get hold of him and conduct an interview earlier this morning. Yeah, so this interview, I sent out a request, and not in January, but just the way things have sort of panned out and the way the season's gone up in the north, uh, managed to finally do it this morning. And so I kind of reached out to Tom. So it was initially around the 1872 Cup, uh, which is contested between Glasgow and Edinburgh every year. Uh, mm-hmm. Tom scored uh, his first try for uh, for Glasgow and helped them retain the cup in the in the big anniversary year. And I'd, I'd seen him over there, and I was thinking, oh, I'm pretty sure there was a Tom Jordan that played a bit of rugby when I went to school. And I looked it up, and lo and behold, it was the same one, a few years younger than me. So put out the the, the request, and eventually got that over the line. But it's very, it's got a bit of an interesting journey, I'd say, because lots of people, and it's something we touch on too, lots of people that go over to Europe or to Japan, usually they, they've had a go here, not have not worked out, and they think, oh, I might make a bit of money playing overseas. Whilst he's actually started his career playing over there, mm. he didn't play rugby professionally here. He was on the cusp, I think, for Waikato, but didn't didn't make it and had an opportunity to go overseas. So he's taken it, and at the beginning of the pro or the formal Pro 14, the United Rugby Championship season, he made an unexpected debut and ended up winning the Warriors Breakthrough Player of the Year. So it's been a very good year for him. Yeah, no, good luck, and hopefully other people listening might realise that, hey, maybe if somewhat either your pathway stifled through politics or maybe not been given a fair go, there are still other ways of playing rugby at the highest level. So we'll listen to that interview with Ben and Tom Jordan coming up after 9 o'clock. You can keep your thoughts coming here on 8833. Don't forget the telephone number. We'll have some time for talk back between 9 and 10 on 0800 150811. That's 0800 150811. You're listening to SENZ. 
It is 9 o'clock, you are listening to SENZ. We will open the lines a little bit later, between now and 10 on 0800 150 You can text us here too on 8833. Between 10 and 11 tonight, we're going to bring you our rugby shows. Tonight, we are going to put the spotlight and focus on the Hurricanes, Gordon Simpson alongside of me, and then we're going to put the spotlight and focus on the Blues. Uh, that with former Blues halfback Steve Devine. Uh, you Crusaders fans might not appreciate the last couple of minutes of that particular show because we had a little bit of banter at your expense. But that's what rugby needs. We need the tribalism back. We need the Carlos Spencers and the Andrew Mertens and the Love Hate and the Mark Carters and the Reuben Thorns and all that niggle back. Rugby was in a better space when we had that division and that angst and that love-hate relationship which seems to no longer exist amongst any of our franchises. Uh, but what we want to do now is, and Ben's gone to a lot of work on this, so Ben Francis, who produces the show, um, you might have heard him before 9 o'clock if you just joined in, he saw the name Tom Jordan, uh, a New Zealander playing rugby for Glasgow, and he featured and starred for that club in his first season, and what interested him is he wondered whether it was a Tom Jordan that he might have gone to school with. And in fact it is. Uh, O'Reilly College. And it's an interesting journey that Tom Jordan's taken to end up playing professional rugby in Scotland. So Ben, I'm going to throw this interview over to you, my good man. Cheers, mate. Yeah, so uh, Tom Jordan first signed a professional deal with Glasgow in November 2021. He'd been playing in the Super 6, which I'd say is equivalent to NPC with uh, the Ayrshire Bulls. Uh, he had a first training session when Dave Rennie was at the helm as well. His journey began, uh, his professional journey has been uh, all in Scotland, and I had to start off by asking how things are in Scotland at the moment. Yeah, really good. It's sunny over in Glasgow today. It's finally picking up over here in the uk so not quite the same as auckland but no nah, it's been a it's good man feeling good yeah uh, good stuff uh firstly before we really get into it i don't know if craig told you but uh i'm gonna i'm gonna use this as a little shameless plug but we actually used to go to the same school and we actually used to catch the same bus yeah craig um did mention when i he actually said when we first i think when you first got in touch with craig he said oh you know, some guy from New Zealand, he's working a radio show, and he, he said you guys were on the same bus together. I was like, just trying to rattle through everyone, but I think you're a couple of years older, but I definitely recognised the face when I saw the photo. I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> good to see you going well. Well, that's, that. well, that, that's good. So uh, at, least, at least I'm not making that up. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, mate, we're here, out, here to talk some rugby. So can you tell us a bit about your journey in rugby? You, of course, born here, didn't play professionally here, but you've ended up in Scotland. So just talk us how you ended up over there. Yeah, so straight after school, I went down to University of Waikato. So was in the sort of academies there with Waikato and played for Hamilton Old Boys. So was there for a couple of seasons. And, no, it was awesome while I was doing my uni Um yeah, had a great time down there. And then as I finished up uni, I, I've i got a UK sort of ancestry visa. Well, I got a UK ancestry visa and I was like, you know, let's either move home or get, and get a job or try just have a go overseas and see a bit of the world. So chose that and came over to a club at, um, called Air, which is about an hour south of Glasgow, not really knowing too much. It was a semi-professional league just starting. Um Thought I was just going to be here for six months or so. Um, really enjoyed my time. And then obviously, as I came over, COVID 
COVID hit. So came back for a few months through COVID and then was like, nah, I still want to go and give the UK a crack. Um, really enjoy my time. So I flew back over about, it's probably July, June or July 2020, sort of mid-COVID and got invited to train with Glasgow Warriors as they sort of opened back up again with professional sport. And yeah, just sort of bided my time there for a for a season or so. And then, yeah, managed to this season play a good good amount of games and yeah, been enjoying my time since then. So no, nah, I've been loving it. And no, nah, it's a bit of a strange journey. I was a bit older than most people to sort of go professional, but you know, it's been an awesome, awesome experience. Met so many really good lifelong friends now over here. And yeah, I'm loving it over here at the moment. Yeah. Um, I was doing some research and when you had your first training session with Glasgow, that was when uh, Dave Rennie was uh, running the team. Is that correct? Yeah, that was right. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, he's yeah. obviously, he's obviously gone on to bigger and better things for sure. But no, he was, um, it was, there was, he had a quite a lot, quite a few Kiwi boys, Kiwi and Aussie boys over at, at the time. So I think that's a good thing with Glasgow. It's such a, it's quite an international team. There's so many boys from all over the place. So yeah, it makes it feel quite like home, to be honest. <laughs> did did you know any? Did you know much about Scotland or the United Rugby Championship before heading over, or was it literally just I don't know much, but this is an opportunity. Let's just take it. Yeah, I think with most people in New Zealand, it is sort of like that. Like, I don't think people realise how big sort of the competitions are over here. You know, you've got Europe and you know the URC that we're in. You know, involves you know, South Africa, Italy, and all the UK um, countries as well, Ireland, Wales, Scotland, like, it's a huge competition and with some really great teams. And at the time, I didn't really, because I guess I was coming over to a semi-pro team, I didn't really know too much about it. But definitely looking back, even at NZ now, I think, yeah, a lot of people don't really realise how big sort of the competitions are here, especially the Europe, like the Heineken Champions Cup and all of those like they're huge competitions and you know the fan fan bases and everything in that is huge so yeah i didn't really know much at the time but now that i'm here it's like it's just crazy what sort of level um all of that is really how, how was it um trying to do everything during that covid period i think you from what you said i think you were over here at first then kind of moved over and you know, lockdowns galore here, lockdowns galore over there, and so much uncertainty. So, how how did you manage that period? Yeah, it was um, it was obviously, I mean, it was really tough for everyone. Um, I think we were, I sort of land on my feet really with coming in to train with Glasgow. Is I think one of the first sort of restrictions that was opened up was allowing professional sport to sort of get going, get a bit of entertainment into everyone's household again so I think we were I was lucky in the fact that I was able to get in and train with Glasgow where they the, the games were sort of starting up again because you know so many of my other mates who playing rugby they just had nothing you know for so long sort of in, in club land just because you know restrictions and all of that so yeah it was definitely tough at the time and moving over sort of in the middle of COVID was I mean people could look and say it would probably wasn't the best idea, but no, I definitely um was pretty lucky and sort of landed on my feet being able to come and go in and train there and and just be involved in full time rugby for, you know, a whole year or so while everything was sort of still locked down. So 
then that's kind of everyone's sort of rugby dream is just to do it full time. So um, it was awesome just to go in and train pretty much every day and yeah, and enjoy it. So that was, that was definitely sort of a lucky thing that I managed to get through there on. So, yeah. Did you expect all these opportunities to come your way when you first went over there? Not really. To be honest, when I first came over, I thought it was sort of just to go and get a bit more rugby and a bit more experience and just try something new. And my plan was originally to come back and, you know, come back and try to give rugby and NZ another go and, you know, keep pushing in those regards. But, um, yeah, I just sort of, it just sort of how it worked out with COVID and everything. It just gave me a bit of, bit of an itch to get back over. And yeah, I never really thought of it working out like that. It was never my intention, but I guess as you just go and you sort of travel and see more of the world, you just realize there's a bit more out there and a more to see. And yeah, I thought when I first came over, I didn't quite um, get to do all that. So definitely just trying to make the most of it now with obviously all the other perks of living over this side, like the travel and, and when we get time off, you know, we're so close to everything as well. So just trying to make the most of that before um, coming back, for sure. Would you describe your journey as, I would say, unique? Because lots of guys, when they um, move over to Kiwis, when they move over to Europe, they've usually had a bit of a stint in New Zealand. And then they think, you know, oh, we'll, we'll go try something new. But this is actually the start of your journey. So are you, are you glad with how things have played out so far? Yeah, no, for sure. I think um, looking back, I mean, during the time it was it was quite tough for sure. You know, I wasn't, um, I didn't play obviously any professional, well, top level rugby in New Zealand with minor ten or anything like that. You know, I was always quite on the cusp of it, um, in and around there, but just never, never fully cracked it. Um, so yeah, it was tough as I sort of got older and I was thinking, you know, there's definitely times where you think, like, you know, am I good enough or that sort of stuff but you know I've always just really enjoyed training and working hard and I guess that's sort of like the basis that I've built my game on and you know I just keep working working and you know eventually got the opportunity but yeah I think it definitely is unique you know a lot of people like you say crack it when they're a lot younger and then they have those opportunities abroad because New Zealand's such a huge rugby nation you know all the competitions in New Zealand New Zealand are highly highly rated so teams over here love it um so sort of to come over without that sort of experience it was definitely a little bit tougher um but looking back on it now after having you know a season now of professional rugby I definitely think um you know it was a good time you know I could have maybe cracked it you know when I was a couple years younger but you know maybe I wasn't as prepared as maybe what I was now you know I've been through um, a few different teams and and learned things along the way so when I finally got my sort of opportunity I felt yeah I'm 100% ready where maybe a few years ago you know you would have been ready and who knows it might you might not have gone as well and and maybe that could have been your only chance so I think it's worked out really well I'm glad it's worked out how it has in the end um, but yeah yeah I'm really happy with how it's sort of progressed and I wouldn't trade any of the experience I've had and those other teams at all because some of the memories I had with Air and the Ayrshire Bulls were you know some of the some of the greatest rugby memories I've had as well so you know I wouldn't trade any of those for anything else really.
good stuff. Uh, we're catching up with Glasgow Warriors first five. Tom Jordan here, born in New Zealand, but playing his trade over in Scotland. Uh, two Scottish uh, teams in the United Rugby Championship, Glasgow and Edinburgh. Uh, both things full of lots of experienced Scottish players. So how's it rubbing shoulders with some of these guys that are that are playing at the highest level? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, Scotland as a whole nation has definitely shown to the rugby world like they're they're ready to compete. You know, they're I think they're third in the Six Nations. You know, the highest they've ever come, and some of the players there are you know world class. You know, and we I think we had about they just announced the world. World Cup squad. I think we had fourteen or fifteen boys in the World Cup squad, and you know how starting fifteen usually on the weekend is, has about thirteen Scotland play, thirteen, twelve, thirteen Scotland players. So you really are rubbing shoulders with you know some of you know the best players in international rugby. You know they gave the All Blacks a good run for their money this year in the autumn autumn nations, and you know beat England as well. So I think. For a country that probably a few years ago was probably looked at as maybe a team that was just there, they really are competing now. And I think all of those boys have really, they've really taken their game to the next level. So, yeah, it's like anywhere when you're around boys who are really pushing it on an international stage, it really lifts the whole sort of culture and performance of the team. So I've definitely... I've definitely learned a lot from those boys as well. And there's some experienced heads in there too. So no, it's definitely, definitely a great side to be a part of. Um, and yeah, I've definitely learned a lot from them as well, which has been awesome. I don't know your contract situation, but I know you have been over there for a few years. So are you potentially going to be another kilted Kiwi? <laughs> um, well, I've, I've have been here for about three years now. So I think, or maybe just over. I think I've got about eighteen months still to qualify as Scottish, <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm still on for another couple seasons here. So I think I'll qualify during that time, but we'll have to see. You know, everyone wants to chase the black jersey still. <laughs> as, as but I don't think I like the foreigners either. Um, changing allegiances too much either over here. <laughs> Uh, well, there's, there's been there's been quite a few who have done it. I, I think Sean Maitland was one of the, the greatest successes who have done it. Um, but a bit about your time on the field, mate. You made your de- debut against uh, Benetton. Uh, do you remember the moment you found out and what that whole experience was like leading up to your first professional match? Yeah, it was... Um, yeah, it was, I, d- I wasn't really ex- expecting to play. Sort of at the start of the season, I was thinking my goal was sort of just to play one game the whole year really um and one of our other first fives picked up a bit of an injury so i thought oh i might could be on the bench here and then i just got named to start and i was a bit yeah but a little bit not thrown off but wasn't really expecting it um but i guess the cool thing over here is you know i guess in nz you'd get on a bus and go to the game we um we're off to the airport in our own chartered flight off to italy to play you know it was a pretty cool experience to travel over and do it like that so it was no it was awesome um still a bit of summer heat coming in italy so no it was a it was an awesome experience we unfortunately didn't play our greatest and we we lost that game um but no it was awesome just uh it kind of felt like a getting the monkey off my back almost to finally you know get my first professional cap and yeah it was a really it was a really great moment i was really proud of 
really proud of that. But, you know, after that, I felt like, you know, I had so much more to give because it wasn't really the performance we're after. And I felt, you know, I can definitely sort of after that game, I felt, no, I can definitely do it, um, play at this level. And I know I've got so much more to sort of grow and, and build into. So it was, uh, it was a great moment and definitely after that, I felt like I had a lot more to give. So no, it was, it was an awesome experience and I, I was really proud of it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Of course, uh, playing the United Rugby Championship, uh, you play against multiple, you play in multiple countries, Wales, uh, Ireland, Italy, South Africa. Do you have a favourite venue to go to other than Glasgow, of course? Oh, geez. We, um, we've played in some pretty cool stadiums um, along the way. Obviously, haven't played in all of them, but when we went to South Africa, it was pretty cool to go and play um, at the Sharks Stadium. I think it's the Hollywood Bets Stadium, I think. And they've got like <laughs> like a jacuzzi and a slide and the end goal <laughs> and people and like bars around. It's quite, it's pretty cool. Um, and also we played at um, the Emirates Stadium where the Lions play in Johannesburg, which has obviously had so many unbelievable test matches and stuff like that throughout the years. So it's a pretty historic sort of stadium. So yeah, to play there was pretty awesome. It wasn't packed out, unfortunately, because obviously it's a huge stadium. But yeah, it's been cool just to play in some cool places around the world. Um, and you sort of travel different, different countries and experience some different cultures and stuff like that. So I'd say definitely the South Africa um, trips are a highlight for sure. Um, something that I was experienced for the first time. So no, it was it was cool to go over there and, and play in some of those stadiums and the heat as well bit of a break from the from the Scottish winter going over there to about 30 degrees and the and the sun was pretty bit of a shock to the system but no it was definitely an awesome experience for sure it sounds it uh and one fixture which I think is well, I think it's quite big personally um and I know it's definitely big over there is the 1872 cup games against Edinburgh I believe that you I, I I think it was at the second game you had a man of the match performance and helped players go retain the cup I don't know where that I didn't I didn't get named man of the match. Maybe my hat my name was thrown in the hat, maybe. Um, but I scored a scored a try, my first try, I think, for Glasgow there. But I think that that's the stadium also I forgot to say was uh Murrayfield. That's where we played that game. I think we had there was a bit over twenty five thousand people there. So that was a pretty cool experience. And yeah, to win the eighteen seventy two cup as it's a two leg um aggregate game um yeah it was it was awesome you know one of the oldest i guess domestic rivalries in the world so that was that was an awesome experience and yeah to win that was was pretty cool i think it was 150th year as well of it so no so many i guess milestones for that game and yeah i guess i went all right to be fair which was good scored a try so no, it was an awesome atmosphere, awesome experience. And yeah, definitely one of the highlights for the year for sure. So that was definitely up there. Uh, can you talk a bit about the state of rugby up in, in the north? I'm not too sure how much attention you pay to stuff over here, but uh, no, quite, you know, of course, super rugby, but you see dwindling crowd numbers and less interest in some of the competitions. Of course, you see the New Zealand sides win more often than not. Um, so overall, what what is... How is rugby up in up in your part of the world? I'd say it's pretty. I'd say overall it's pretty good. Um, I think 
I guess fans wise and attendance wise, it's pretty consistent throughout the year. Our stadiums, not all the stadiums are huge, but when they do sort of get those big events, um, big games, you know, crowds do turn up. Um, you know, you can see in the, I guess the Europe semi-finals with Leinster and Toulouse, they were playing at the Aviva, and it looked pretty full there. There was the the URC semi-final between the Bulls and the Stormers. I think they had about forty thousand people going to watch there, which you know shows that you know people. I think the fans over here are really supportive and they sort of love their team. You know, they sort of diehard fans. They show up every week. Um, so yeah, I think it's. I think it's pretty good up here. I think people, for how long the season is with how many games, you know, I think we play 25 at least games a year, not including finals. So, you know, with all of that included, I think, you know, the sort of the commitment and turnout from sort of fans is quite, quite high. You know, I think probably the only thing with Scotland is it's quite a big football city, I'd say with, We've got the Glasgow and uh, the Celtic and Rangers rivalries, which are massive in Glasgow. So we're probably not the biggest rugby city, um, but for the other sort of countries that are, they get pretty consistent turnouts throughout the year. So I think overall it's it's pretty pretty good up here. Uh, I'm sorry I have to bring this up, but I just wanted to know how your shoulder and your hammy is after what happened on the weekend. Yeah, I know. I sort of, I've done myself a bit, a bit of a dirty there. I've got a red card and um, yeah, just waiting to hear back with sort of what's going to happen, but it's probably not looking great, but so I'll probably miss out on our final in a couple of weeks time potentially. So yeah, a bit of a shame there, but no, I'm actually right. It was a, I had a bit of like a neural, a neural pain and like sciatica nerve sort of get, got struck and my whole leg just sort of stopped working. So it's eased up a little bit now, which is good, but yeah, <laughs> didn't really help me in the time. So yeah, apologies. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but for those that didn't see, uh, yeah, Tom got a red card in the uh, quarterfinal loss to Munster. Nice. I it was. I thought it was a great effort, considering you were you were hobbling along uh, to to get Connor Murray. Um, and I don't know if you heard the commentary, but it was quite ironic that they were talking about that you guys had no backup first five on the bench. Yeah, I think. Uh, we went with, we always go with the 6-2 split on the bench and um, our coach, Franco, decided to go without a 10. Um, so I kind of knew I was going to be in to sort of go the whole game and then, yeah, Miami started going at about 25 minutes and then, yeah, got red card about 25 minutes in. So put the boys, bit gutted, I put the boys in a bit of a tough situation there. So, yeah, I can, can blame the loss on me there, which was a bit, a bit gutting, but yeah, we've got a, obviously that was the quarterfinal for the URC competition, but we're, we'd already qualified for the European challenge cup final against Toulon over in Dublin in two weeks time. So hopefully we, the boys can get up and finish the season strong, which would be awesome. I think it's the first time that Glasgow's um, in a European final. So huge, huge game for the club really. Um, in the city, really. So hopefully the boys can get the job done. So I'll be cheering them on if, if I'm not out there, but fingers crossed for now. Right. Well, that was going to be my next question asking about that, but I feel like you covered that. So I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll leave that one. Uh, 
of course, this year, you know, great year from yourself and you ended up winning the the Warriors Breakthrough Player of the Year. How was winning that award? Yeah, it was it was awesome, really. I, I wasn't really expecting to win anything. I didn't really know the awards. And then I think when they read it out, it was a bit of a surprise. But, yeah, just it was awesome to be recognised in an award like that. You know, it's always it's always really nice to be recognised and get an award like that. Um, you know, it shows that, you know, I guess, your coaches sort of and peers sort of believe in you and see – and see that you're going all right. So no, it was it was really awesome and really humbling to get an award like that. And um, you know, it was good to just to reflect at that point what how the season had gone so far before the finals. You know, we'd we'd had some great wins and we'd have quite a successful season up to there. So no, to just be a part of that and um, get that award was really great. I'm just was really grateful just to have all the opportunities I have this year to sort of express myself as I know a lot of boys sometimes can be limited with games so no I'm just grateful for every opportunity that I got out in the field so just trying to make the most of it every time really so yeah it was really it was really awesome to um, be recognized there yeah what part of your game do you think you improved on the most this year and have you got any like work-ons as you kind of look towards next season yeah I definitely think obviously as a team the sort of game management side of the game is huge and sort of your kicking game and just knowing when your team's going backwards and going forwards and sort of what you need to do to put your team in the right parts of the field, especially, you know, the weather, I guess we play in a bit more than, than back home, you know, it's a bit, you know, it can be a bit more of a kicking battle at times, but Glasgow, um, we've got always had a run sort of run first counterattack mentality. So, we always have a go, but then, you know, you need to be able to read when it's actually not going forward, when to kick. So I think that's definitely something I've learned a lot of. We've had, you know, we've got a lot of experienced tens like Duncan Ware, who's played multiple times for Scotland and um, various other clubs as well. So, you know, yeah, I think that's some of the big learnings I've had. And I definitely know sort of going forward, I can bring a lot more to the game, sort of decision-making and accuracy as well, and just being consistent week in, week out. Um, something we will strive for, I guess, as professionals is, you know, being as close to perfect as possible. Um, but, yeah, that's definitely something working on. And, yeah, I feel like I've definitely built a lot this season, but I feel like I can definitely grow a lot more and bring a lot more to the table. So, no, it'll be a big off-season for sure, and, yeah, ready to sort of rip into next season as well. All right, Tom, I've uh, kept you for long enough, so I've just got some like real quick questions here for you, some, some short, snappy questions, and hopefully we'll see what answers you come up with. Uh, the first one is, uh, what school did you hate playing the most at Oriwa? Oh, probably Westlake, because they always beat us. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool. <laughs> Fair enough, mate. Oh, there's going to be a few people quite happy with that answer too. Um, next one is, have you noticed yourself picking up any of the Scottish lingo in your own vocabulary since you've been there? Not, I don't I don't think I use it too much, but they always say we. It's always, do you want a we drink or a we something, you know? <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I always say, well, like, you're right, mate, when the accent, but I can't do the accent that well, but... <laughs> I don't really want to get the accent, to be fair, so. 
Rangers or Celtic? Um, I'd probably say Rangers just because it's what most of the boys support and it's closer to where I live. So I'll probably just off that basis go Rangers. But yeah, keep the head down low when you're supporting those teams. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Iron Brew or Alan P? Oh, nah, Alan P for sure. Alan P for sure. Iron Brew is, it's unique, but I don't think I could drink it every day. Alan P is nice though. Reminds me of home as well. It's really good. Going to have to bring some over for sure. Uh, haggis, yes or no? Yeah, haggis I like. Black pudding, nah. <laughs> um, and I'm, I, I don't know if you have tried this, but of course, you know, fish and chips over here is quite a staple. And I know in Scotland, it's either you have it with your salt and vinegar or brown sauce. Do you have a preference? Oh, I'd probably, I'd go salt and vinegar, but not too much because... If you, they just drench it, and honestly, and it's just like a soup. So you got to be careful with the portions there. <laughs> uh, and the last one, mate, is uh, what's the one thing you miss most about New Zealand, and you can't say your family? Because I know I'd that's an option. That's, that's a given. Yeah, I'd probably say the beaches and just sort of the sort of coastal lifestyle. You know, obviously up in. I was up in Oriwa, went to school, you know, right by the beach. So Glasgow's a little bit more city, bit more of a city. So yeah, I think I definitely miss the beaches and sort of the outdoors a bit more. Yeah. Well, Tom Jordan, thank you so much for your time here as a fellow former Oriwa College student. Great to see you doing well and playing at such a high level. Uh, all the best and hopefully we can chat again soon. Uh, it's been a privilege and a pleasure catching up with you. No, thanks for having me. It was awesome chatting. Cheers, Ben. There you go, the privilege and the pleasure line. Well done, Ben. Nice job. Um, so Tom Jordan there, playing professional rugby in Scotland. Could end up playing for Scotland yet. I'm not sure what his um, lineage is necessarily uh, in the long term, but if he stays there and plays long enough there, I'm, I'd imagine that, hey, those higher honours to come. We've already had um, earlier today on the programme Gordon Simpson, who went through Rosmany College on Auckland's North Shore and ended up playing 12 tests for Scotland, and Chainsaw Laney, another one, uh, ended up going on and playing for Scotland, and Sean Lanine. There's been a lot of New Zealanders over the years that have ended up wearing the famous Scottish jersey. Uh, look, um, we had the rugby shows on a little earlier. We're going to replay those between 10 and 11 tonight. Um, but if you do just want to have your say on 0800 150 uh, feel free to give us a call. The lines are open. Um, just want to talk a little bit about subconscious bias. And this is a term that's come up regarding the referee in the NRL. And I think, look, it does exist, isn't it? Subconscious bias. And I'll give you an example. Uh, so there's a ram rate. And you automatically then will go, hey, somebody ram rated the local supermarket. So in your own head, you'll automatically paint a picture, probably likely to be under 20, probably to come from um, a more of a low socioeconomic background. And these will be the, this is what you'll formulate in your head, rightly or wrongly, this is what you'll formulate in your head. So you already have an unconscious bias and they catch the perpetrators and it could be quite the opposite. But we have these preconceived ideas, we have these preconceived or built-in prejudices or stereotypes that we've picked up, whether it be from television, whether we've been um, be it picked it up at school or whatever. And so it probably does exist. And interesting on NRL 360 the other day, with Paul Kent coming out and saying, 
yeah, look, the 50-50 calls are actually 60-40 calls. They will always go in favour of the teams with the big reputations, the teams that have been successful. And I think you could probably take that down to a micro level and suggest that maybe uh, iconic players get away with a little bit more than lesser known players. And so in making those comments in around 360, he basically said, yes, there is a subconscious bias or a subconscious prejudice. He describes it as 60-40. So yes, it probably does exist, but for the fact it's subconscious, it's not intentional, it's not deliberate. So if that is the case, and I encourage everybody to pick up a referee's whistle and go and do it, and and then maybe afterwards or take a few mental checks as you're going. Um, probably if you're not familiar with either team, it's, you probably are a lot more neutral. But I mean, if you were... If you were refereeing a football game with Cristiano Ronaldo and he was tripped up or he was tackled, there's probably more of a likelihood because it's him that you would probably penalise the player involved, even though it might have been a legitimate tackle, more so than if it was a lesser known player. So how do you deal with it then? If it's out there, how do you deal with it? Or do what Paul Kent says, you've got to, earn your way out of it, you've got to work your way out of it, you've got to become one of those teams, one of those players that has a reputation, that has established itself You might want to comment on that 0800 150 811 is the number, uh, we also earlier today did have the rugby show, so we had Steve Devine on the programme, uh, we had Gordon Simpson talking about the Hurricanes we were really lucky too because we also had Jamie McIntosh uh, just talking a little bit about uh, what went wrong in Fiji and um, what their expectations are going forward. So look, anything on your mind that you do want to talk about, uh, feel free to give us a call on 0800 150 You can text us here on double eight double three. It is coming up to 23 minutes away from 10 o'clock. Okay, um, just actually had a really nice text coming in from Mike Hughes, a very good athlete in his own right. He just texted and he said, Hi Watto, great listening here in Koh Samui. Surprising how many Kiwis in Thailand and the Philippines listen to SENZ. However, you need a WhatsApp number and I'm sure you'll get calls and texts. We're five hours behind New Zealand, so time is great. How, how does it work for people overseas, Ben? Can they just dial through on a WhatsApp or not? Uh, they uh, There should be an option if you down, if you listen on the app. There yep. should be an option to call through, and it does call through. We actually had – it was on it was on the Saturday show. We actually had someone call through from India. Yeah. Which I, I, we were completely blown away by, but it was some guy that saw Grant and po- Grant Elliott posted yeah. saying, "Listen in," and he. So you think that if you go through the app, you can dial through? You should be able to. Yes. Okay. So if you're listening, Mike, good to hear from you, my good man, good athlete in his own right, Mike Hughes. Um, yeah, feel free, but appreciate the uh, message, mate. It is 18 minutes away from 10. Let's go to the phones. Hi, John. Uh, yeah, listen, I've got my still got my ticket to the South Africa versus Waikato game. Saturday, 25th of July, 1980, Rugby Park, Hamilton. Where they put tax on the ground. I'm just wondering if that would be a collector's piece. I would think so. If it's been unripped and it's been untorn, is, or uh, if you, it has been ripped? 
Uh, no, 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 no. It says ground admission, standing room only, and the secretary is B R U S M A R. His name is Secretary NZRFU. Yeah, yeah, John, it's an interesting one because I, I often check on sports memorabilia, and it hasn't probably taken off here like it say does in America. But those things are historic for reasons bigger than just the game of rugby. Clearly, because of this, you know, the protest and the apartheid and the nineteen. And the 1980 Springbok tour. So, um, yeah, mate, I, I, I would hang on to it. I mean, you you got to make that decision. Do I want 100 bucks, mm. or would I rather just keep it? What's $100 going to do a meal out, and then I've lost it forever? Uh, look, I, I do think that memorabilia and those sorts of things, um, I think there's probably I, – I think it's more about – I think a museum, the right museum would love something like that because, yeah, there wouldn't be a lot of those left, mate. No, the secretary was name was B R U S M A R, unusual name, Usma or something. Mm. Yeah. Secretary N Z R F U. Was it eighty or eighty one the Springbok tour? Nineteen eighty. Nineteen eighty. Yeah, uh, it's Sa- funny because Saturday, Saturday twenty fifth of July, nineteen eighty. Yeah, because Park, Hamilton. That's probably the first series that I vividly remember. I would have been ten or possibly nine at the time, but I always remember Alan Hewson's kick at Eden Park. I remember the second test being interrupted because protest had got up and taken out the telecommunications tower in the Waitakere Ranges. Uh, clearly the flower, flower bomb test at Eden Park. Um, and the New Zealand Māori should have beaten South Africa in one of those midweek games. I think the drop goal went over and the referee said it didn't. It ended up being a draw. And of course the Waikato game, because yeah, they just put tacks or nails on the ground and meant nobody could play. Mm. What are your memories yeah, of the still, tour, John? We oh, I, I went to the games at Eden Park. They, they played Auckland at Eden Park as well. Yeah, they did. And and I was there for the third test, I think, or the fourth, third test, I think it was. But I didn't, I, I didn't save my ticket for that. Mm, mm. Should have. But uh, that game at White Canada, I think we stood there for about three or four hours and uh, didn't see anything. Can you remember some of the players that were in that Waikato team of the time? Oh, no, I can't. No, no. I, I, no probably I, just, I, I, I probably was too young to specialise on the domestic stuff. You know, a lot those of the, were the days yeah. when, uh, when people used to go to uh, Hamilton, Wangarei, counties, you know, when, when it was good to watch. Yeah, when the yeah, New Zealand yeah, Rugby but, Union but, actually cared about the fan, John. Busloads used to go, trains used to go, everything. You know, when, when, when Auckland played... North Auckland, I mean, there was just cars by the mile going up to Wangarei, you know, buses yeah. and everything. Yeah, now the going boys, eh? Yeah, fantastic times. Yeah, 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 yeah it's all been lost. It has, Graham, and it's, and, oh, sorry, John, it's a, it's a real tragedy, mate, and it's it's an absolute shame, and this current administration just don't seem to care. All they seem to be interested, mate, is the All Blacks bringing them in money. Well, it's just a yawn, yeah. Yeah, no, well said, John. You're not the only one that thinks that, mate. Hey, uh, John... The... the, the, yeah. the NRL has gone to a new level. And again, that is the general sentiment that I am getting from most people I talk to. We're actually having a conversation, Gordon Simpson, who's played for Scotland, prior to coming on here tonight at 7 o'clock. That was the chatter around the, uh, you know, just around the office here. That, and so many people from different walk of life sharing the exact same sentiment as you, John. Yeah. Hey, lovely to have you on the programme. Thank you, and really appreciate that. Hang on to that ticket, my good man. I don't think there's enough in it to sell it, but I reckon that giving that to the right place would be something really special, even if you just sort of, um, you know, technically still own it, but have someone put it on display. They have very, very cool pieces of not just New Zealand history, but also rugby history. Uh, Graham, good evening. Welcome. Earth calling Graham. 
Yeah, good. How are you? Good, thank you. Oh, good. It was 1981, not 1980, though. I know. He said um, on his ticket 80, but it was 81. I know it was, yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I understand. Maybe, maybe it was a misprint on the ticket. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, but, um, yeah, no, that's a fascinating story, though. And um, mm. also, yeah, I remember, I remember just listening to that. I was listening on the radio, and that game got called off. You know, mm. I remember... Because the games used to be delayed on TV, mm. five o'clock. You know, I remember when Canterbury had the Shield between eighty-two and eighty-five, mm. and you'd go to the Shield games, and then you'd come home and watch the an hour replay, and that was the same. And I remember um, saying to mum and dad, "Oh, the games getting you know, here and bashing and carrying on." But yeah, but um, yeah, a really fascinating story though from John. Yeah, no, about that that era. Yeah, that was the Arthur Stone sort of era and Waikato. Yeah, because he, he got the try for them. When they took the shield of Auckland, I think there was a runaway try that year. Mm. <clears throat> um, yeah, so yeah, that that was a pretty good Waikato side too. So you know, they weren't too happy. Yeah, I think in, I, I remember in Wellington. I think they had the Molesworth. I think it was Molesworth Street or something. There was a big protest there. I can't remember oh, too much. Yeah. Can't remember too much happening in Christchurch. I think. Oh no, a lot happened here in Christchurch. They got because I was at the eighty-one um, All Black Springboks test, and mm. they got on the actual ground. And um, and I yeah no it was it wasn't like the Eden Park you know the third mm. test and Alan Newson got the goal um, you know and and yeah, the flower but... bomb Gary Knight but uh, they actually got on the ground the protesters and um, and the yeah that and the red squad mm. did the old you know obviously there was, <laughs> they sort of shunted them off the field with batons mm. and then. Had all these tacks all over the ground. I remember Alex Wiley, who became the Canterbury mm. coach. Well, he was one of the guys going around. They had sort of, um, sort of security picking up the. Oh, I remember Wiley, you know. So yeah, no, it actually. Well, I remember walking. You know, it was like a. You know, it was um, a very sad. Like I mean, all sad or disturbing mm. thing as a fifteen-year-old walking around. You're saying police everywhere and barbed wire and. Um, even at that age, you know. But, yeah, uh, you I, know, it, it, yeah my, my memories of it, because I used to just love those South African names and I always remember guys like Henny Becker uh, playing and you, you go back through them just trying to yep. remember off the, uh, off you know, some of them, Surfontaine and Nas Balta and then you had, I think, Willie Duplessis and, and, and Carol Duplessis and uh, Ray Mort, uh, you know, iconic oh, yeah, names, Ray weren't Mort. they? he played in that series. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Jerry Hermeshade. <laughs> He played in the South. I think he came out here in '81, but he played. Remember '76? Watch, watching that series mm. on TV, and that was you talking about um, referee Bohas and that. But I always remember Bruce Robertson got, um, mm. you know, held back. And he chipped the balls through it. I think it was the second or third. I think it was the third test that cost the All Blacks the series. But mm. I mean, it was pretty rife, you know, under the the apartheid because there was no. I mean, there was no. I don't know. It wasn't just apartheid. It was just mm. the whole. You know, I mean, even our referees, Colin Mead's a great man that he was. I think he used to tell referees what to do when they came out here and played mm. against the All Blacks, you know. But um, obviously it was on TV. Remember, there was sort of blatant things happened, you know, in that 76 series. But, yeah, people, you know, there were bad times often. But but as you say, there was a narrative and that, you know, the bad, even the bad times were good, as the old song says. You know. Yeah, well, that's it, that, that's it, Graham. And um, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, there's just nothing now. Hey, look, Graham, I've just got commercial breaks that I just need to take. So, look, thank you for your call. Uh, yeah, wonderful series that 1981 South African tour for. I mean, wonderful from purely from a rugby sense. Um, historic games, uh, boy. 
yeah, that uh, tested Eden Park when we had what eight nine minutes of injury time and um, yeah, and the famous kick from fifty five meters on the angle. We'll take a break. <laughs> 